Do you remember, Sherry, when I was on this kick that my solution to my drinking problem was not to quit drinking, but it was to drink only low alcohol, like light beers, like watered down light beers. But the trade-off was, if I'm going to drink these watered down light beers, I can drink as many of them as I want to. Unlimited quantities of watery light beer. Do you remember that? I don't remember it the way you've described it. Oh, I remember, how do you remember it? I remember we were trying to be very frugal because we were in a little bit of an economic downturn and we owned our own business. <laughs> a personal economic <laughs> downturn. And you decided to drink cheaper beer, which uh-huh. was lower alcohol. And I didn't know it was unlimited. I'm sure you said unlimited in your mind, but it didn't come out of your mouth. But you just drank more to get the same amount of buzz. So then you just spent as much. So I was like, well, this is end up being stupid, right? Like, yeah. You're spending more on cheap beer, quote unquote. Yeah. Yeah. But I don't remember it was unlimited. Oh, in my head it was definitely, it was you, definitely unlimited. Yeah. Because I felt like there's no way I can. A can of a 30 pack for what, like eight bucks or something? You know, I don't remember. I remember it was cheap, but. It's the one that all the hipsters are drinking now. PBR? Yeah, I didn't want to yeah. say it out, and I, out loud. For yeah, for a while, I I also did the same thing with Coors Light. I know at one point. Yeah. I mean, if it had been purely economic, I would have done what we did in college, and that was like natural light. That stuff was cheap. That would be cheaper than Coors Light or PBR. Mm. I think. Well, maybe they didn't have natural light. Yeah. Out here. I mean. I don't know. I haven't seen. You know, that I was re- like, this goes to the gaslighting to the. To the lying that we alcoholics do. I might have painted it in economic terms for you, um, but in my head it was just another attempt to control the uncontrollable. Yeah, well, and I tried and to drink say, even though I knew I should stop drinking. Yeah, and I tried to say, well, if it's that big of a deal and you're cutting out this and we're cutting out that and this and that, then why don't you just cut out drinking? Yeah. So maybe that is why I framed it as a cost savings benefits. Yeah, and then you equated it to my um, YMCA membership, which was a family membership that had free kids activities and I had three we had three kids and it was $69 a month and I'm like that's our only entertainment. They had a swimming pool and free childcare while I worked out and yeah. Well, my So I should have said you can only spend $69 on beer a month. My 30-pack of PBR was family-friendly, too. Anyone could have any. You were welcome to it. And, you know, our, like, 9-year-old and 7-year-old and 4-year-old, they could have had all the PBR they wanted. So I was sharing, too. hmm Yeah. Family-friendly. Um, what I want to talk about, that this is a nice lead-in on this episode of the Untoxicated Podcast. I'm Matt Salis, here with my wife, Sherry Salis, as usual. And what I want to talk about is how alcoholism actually works. And I don't want to insult our listeners, many of whom have lived with alcoholism for years or decades. And I I know you understand functionally how it works. I know that it's a part of your everyday life, or at least it's, you know, something you got to deal with every weekend. But I, I want to share what 
you and I have learned over the years about this disease, about what's actually going on in the background, how it's working biologically and neurologically, and have this discussion because I think it's super helpful. This, this is the kind of stuff that as an alcoholic, once I learned this, it made me much better prepared to quit drinking and to understand what it was going to take to quit drinking and why it was important and to understand that there were lots of things that I could do that I thought were fine in sobriety that were actually making quitting drinking harder. And we'll, we'll talk about that. So I know this, that's kind of a kind of a lofty, nebulous description right there. But, but once I understood these things, it made the quitting easier. And equally important for me was that you understood and that some of this information I brought around to other family, to, to my parents. I wanted them to understand because it does a couple of things. One of the things it does is make me not just look like the weak black sheep of the family with no willpower who sucks at being a human, but rather explains alcoholism as the disease that it is and explains that my brain isn't broken. My brain handled uh, one of the world's most highly addictive substances in just exactly the way it was designed to handle it and allowed us all to treat alcoholism as the disease that it is instead of as my predilection, as my, you know, I'm not quite as, I'm kind of fiendish and devilish and, and I'm kind of a bad person. Um, which is a horrible feeling. So as much as we can get away from that and understand what actually is happening biologically and neurologically to a person that's uh, contracted an addiction, it, it makes the solution, the support, the love, the understanding, all of that much easier. So that's what I want to talk about today. Um, when we talk about neurochemistry, the neurological aspect of alcoholism, there's a couple of different components to what's going on in the brain of someone who is an alcoholic. There is this neurotransmitter hijacking, and that's one of the major components of, of the brain chemistry part of alcoholism. The neurotransmitters specifically that are affected, neurotransmitters are just the chemicals in our brains. The chemicals fire and we feel certain emotions. The chemicals fire in reaction to things. And the chemicals that are involved in alcoholism are the pleasure chemicals, which, you know, that's probably as much as you really need to know, but I'll, I'll name them also because they are becoming more commonly understood. Dopamine being the the one that people know most about or hear most about, but also serotonin and GABA and the endorphins. These are all the neurotransmitters that get hijacked uh, in alcoholism. And what what happens is whenever, you know, each of those, those four neurotransmitters have slightly different functions within the, the concept of pleasure. You know, for some of them, it's contentment and feeling of belonging or a feeling of loving affection for some it's just pure like adrenaline rush happiness um, but I don't think making that distinction is particularly important right now and since I um, don't have it memorized and I've I've like written about this so much and 
I've talked about it so much and I always have to go back to my notes to figure out which of the neurotransmitters is which. Mm-hmm. I've realized it's not important which is which. If I can't commit it to memory and I talk about them all the time, then that's too deep in the weeds, I think, for just for for people who are in the situations like we're in just battling this disease. So really, we can lump all these pleasure neurotransmitters into one and know that all four are affected by alcoholism. And I think that's that's as enough of an understanding as we need to have. If you want to know more, there's plenty out there about what each of the those different neurotransmitters does. But basically, they get released when something happens that should be pleasurable for us. So um, we get a shot of, of dopamine, say, when um, we see a sunset or when one of our kids does, gets a good grade or performs well in sports or we get a kiss from someone we love or a hug you know, or, or our dog comes running up to us. Any of those things that would bring us pleasure, we get a little, a little um, pop of dopamine or the other neurotransmitters. And that's what allows us to function um, with some joy in our life. It's super, super important. It's a key to survival. We can't live without these pleasure neurotransmitters. Life would just be the worst place ever. And so for those of us for whom alcohol creates a euphoric sensation when we drink it, we get a big jolt of those pleasure neurotransmitters when we drink alcohol. Now, I think this right here is a really important point because, Sherry, you and I have talked. One of the things that we had to learn about each other in order for my alcoholism to make any sense and for us to to understand it as a disease is that I think we both, for a long time, just assumed alcohol affected everybody the same. You drink alcohol and you feel good. For me, when I am about two and a half beers into a drinking session, especially the IPAs, the strong beers that I really liked, man, I felt like I was on top of the world. It was like this nearly orgasmic feeling of euphoria in my brain when I would be you know, like I said, couple, two, three beers in. Now, you never experienced that, right? No. So what is, when you have a couple of drinks, what does that feel like for you? It's been a long time, but um, I guess kind of giddy and happy and a little looser, you know, a little more joyful. So so if you were in a social setting and it was kind of anxious, you maybe didn't know everybody, it would calm you down? Um, I suppose it would depend on, like, the situation. Sometimes it wouldn't always, like, calm me down. It just, like, was a time killer. Like, if I didn't know a lot of people and I wasn't talking. But, um, I think that it would depend on, like, who I was with, with how I would react differently. Okay. You know, like, um... Like, if it was a social setting, we were with our friends, and we were doing something fun, and um, not just, like, sitting around the backyard, uh-huh. you know, but something, like, a little bit more like dancing or something, you know, going out to a comedy club or something, I would definitely find more joyfulness and, and giddiness and lightheartedness after a couple of drinks, rather than just sitting in someone's backyard with a at a barbecue. Um 
But so I don't, that, that's, but... that's interesting in and of itself. For me, the the drinking was the thing. Yeah. I didn't care what we were doing. I'd probably rather be at a, somebody's backyard because it would be cheaper and easier to control or easier to drink as much as I wanted yeah. to, I guess. Because the alcohol was the thing. But the alcohol was more of an accent for you, in other words. If yeah, you weren't doing something fun, then the drinking well, wasn't Because I never all that fun. really was that. Like, you would want me to have a couple drinks with you or something on the weekends. And I'm like, why? It's just you and I. Like, I don't get it. And I was never like a, ooh, let's have wine with dinner. Or, you know, I'm cooking with wine, so I'm going to drink a glass of wine while I'm cooking. Like, that was never what I did. So that was that, I guess. But it, like you said, it was just the accent. But then, like, if I drank too much, like... I just kind of felt like I kind of plateaued. I don't feel like I got any better. Right. And then I always had a headache and was sick the next day with a hangover. And or so in the even middle of the night. So one of the major differences between your drinking and my drinking was even while you were drinking, you started to get negative thoughts because you were anticipating the hangover yeah. the next day. Yeah. So and once I started drinking, it was you know I, I'm off to the races. I yeah. There was never a thought of. What was going to happen tomorrow and or like I, slowing down because of what was going to happen tomorrow. Yeah, and I think, like, when you drank mixed drinks and hard alcohol, like, you could drink, like, a double, you know, vodka tonic, you know. Double vodka tonic, hold the tonic. <laughs> yeah. But you could drink that all night, and I would just, like, be like, I will have one tall, you know, vodka and seven, and then I'll have a glass of water. So I was already, like aware most of the time yeah you know there were a couple i mean i'm not saying like i'm a big old prude i mean there's definitely some younger days of blackouts and when you know we were in our late 20s i had an incident where i hadn't eaten enough and drank and you actually had to take care of me yeah like we were in boston but oh boy but i was really hungover and felt like crap the next day so i didn't drink for a good long while after that experience I think the the point here that that's really important to this conversation is alcohol hits different people different ways. A therapist friend of ours who we actually had on one of the very earliest podcast episodes, Dave Friedentag, if I'm remembering his name properly, he he was the one that talked about how everyone's got a, a substance, a thing out there that hits them in this euphoric way and for many people that thing is methamphetamine and since most people will go through their whole life without ever trying methamphetamine they don't realize that that euphoria is available to them and that's a blessing that's a Mm. godsend because you would never want to get hooked on that that's you know so hard to come off of but for some of us the alcohol actually has that super euphoric feeling and that's one of the reasons that we become addicted because we keep going back to the well. Man, that felt great. I'm going to do that again. Oh, man, that felt unbelievable. I'm going to go back to that again. Kelly Miller, the addiction nutritionist who's been on the podcast, she talks about the opioid mimicry um, form of alcoholism. And that's that's kind of what I have. That's kind of a subclassification of what I have. Mm. That my brain responds to alcohol as though I'm taking an opioid. It's that level of euphoria. Wow. And so so it's an important distinction because basically what that means is, back to the brain chemistry piece, 
my brain is releasing such a jolt of these pleasure neurotransmitters when I drink alcohol that it's like this flood of joy and wonderful, wonderful, wonderful feeling. Like there would be no room for me to worry about tomorrow's hangover. I am just so, it's such a euphoric thing. And the brain is constantly trying to reach a state of equilibrium. And this goes for everything. This isn't just just uh, uh, pleasure neurotransmitters as it relates to alcohol. In everything our brain does, it's trying to re reach this, this um, point of equilibrium, homeostasis. And when you drink consistently, like I did, and the alcohol causes this big jolt of neurotransmitter release, then the brain starts to reserve those neurotransmitters, the dopamine, serotonin, only for when you drink. Because you are proving this pattern of, I'm going to drink daily or or however, however often it is in, in pretty good quantities. And every time I drink, I'm going to want that jolt of neurotransmitters. So the brain says, okay, well, you can only have it when you drink. And when you see that sunset or you get that kiss from someone you love or your kid does something great or your favorite football team wins the big game, you don't get any pleasure neurotransmitters from that. And guess what? No pleasure neurotransmitters means no pleasure. So the, the hijacking of the neurotransmitters is super important to the concept of addiction because our, our brains know that pleasure is a requirement for survival. It's one of the basic requirements of our brains for survival. You have to have pleasure in your life. And if the only way to get that pleasure is through drinking, then your brain is going to be hell-bent on you drinking. So you teach your brain this pattern, I'm going to drink constantly, and your brain says, okay, well, we'll only give you the, the pleasure jolt when you drink, so now, oh, you try to you try to get sober. I've noticed you haven't had anything to drink for three or four days. This is a problem for me because the only way I can feel pleasure is is through drinking, and I need to feel pleasure. So I'm going to do everything I can, and that's that's where the cravings come in. I'm going to do everything I can to make you drink. So that's the the hijacking of the brain chemistry, and that's something that you know was never was never really an issue for you because. For one, you didn't drink as much, you didn't drink as often as I did, but you also, the direct correlation between pleasure and drinking wasn't there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it made you, I think you said, a little bit giddy, a little bit lightheaded, uh, maybe it enhanced, it was an accent mm -hmm. to certain situations, but it wasn't this end-all, be-all. Yeah, I just never could understand that. Like, yeah. I, I mean, I still can't quite get my arms around it. It makes me think of, like, when you said a euphoric thing, it makes me think of, like... Some sort of animated, like falling through a, you know, rainbow of flowers and stuff. But I'm like, yes. I'm well, like, that's it. You got it. It's like falling through a rainbow of flowers. I mean, I can remember. I can literally remember times when I had tried to quit drinking and then I had decided that I would drink again. I remember one time at this uh, beer festival, laying in the grass. I'd had maybe three beers and just looking up at the sky and and being like, I, I if. There is no way I am ever going to let alcohol not be a part of my life again. This feels so unbelievably good. And no matter what I do, I've got to figure out a way to control it because if I drink out of control and I'm forced to quit drinking, I just, I don't want to be alive. Like mm -hmm. this feels so good. And so that's like when I say that, that just 
goes straight over your head, right? Yeah. It just doesn't make any sense. I mean, you know, like, and I had friends, you know, that drank and did other drugs and, you know, in high school and college. And I know that they would get feelings of, oh, this is so great, you know. And I, I even didn't get those with some other things. So then when I think of some something. Some other drugs, you mean? Yeah. So then I think of the drugs that I was aware of. Mm-hmm that people that I knew did or ones that I had experimented with like once. I mean, I didn't do any like meth or heroin or anything like that. But why didn't you do meth or heroin? Well, cuz I didn't I knew that they were bad. I mean, well that's the point. You were afraid of them, right? Yeah. They, they had enough of an addictive reputation. Yeah. But we don't Yeah, teach, and I mean, we don't teach people to be yeah. afraid of alcohol. Yeah, so sorry, that's a little side tangent. No, but, I but that's but funny. I knew that's like what you would say, I mean, who, you, would, who would do who would do that? Yeah, What's, you know. Why would but you then try when that? you would say, "Oh, that's how I feel about alcohol," I'm like, "Well, it's just alcohol." Like, yeah, like I haven't done all the drugs out there in the world, and like or opioids or things like that. Like when I've had you know small minor surgeries, I'm like, that's the last thing I want to take is what the doctors give me because I get sick, you yeah. know, and uh, so. You know, I just think, oh, God, and it's just alcohol. How are you getting such a pleasure sensory out of it? Why is it so great for you? Well, thanks for, you know, like defining what one of the big societal problems is with this disease. So many people think, oh, it's just alcohol. It can't hurt you. I certainly thought that. Yeah. Well, and then, like, you didn't really experience a lot of hangovers. Um. So, and, you know, ever really get sick, like physically sick, like vomiting, like I would ever experience. So it's always really shocking to me when we have encountered people that we read about where they do get physically ill and have terrible hangovers and headaches the next day, but then they still drink. Yeah. Because I'm like, I'm already thinking about it, you know, three or four hours after I've drank, like two or three drinks. Like, oh, I wonder how terrible I'm going to feel tomorrow. So I'm like, they so already know, but it's just so, like, hijacking all there's, the there's another There's another neurological reason for that that's a little bit different. It's called allergic something, allergic reactive or something. Instead of the opioid mimicry, this allergic reactive form of alcoholism has to do with the the chemicals that your body releases, your brain releases when you expose it to something that it's it's allergic to. So so in a way, your brain is rejecting the alcohol, but then you get a shot of... Um, uh, I probably shouldn't go down this route because I can't... I don't have my notes in front of me and I can't mm-hmm. find it. But it's, it's like adrenaline <laughs> or a shot of um, histamine. I think it's histamine, actually, that uh, is sent to battle the thing you're allergic to. Well, that gives you kind of a euphoric feeling too, kind of a high. So people, they they drink even though they're going to have this repulsive thing the next day. They're going to be throwing up or or have horrible headaches. But this release of of chemicals makes it worthwhile. Hmm. So it's a little bit different, but similar. And obviously, yeah. I'm not in a position right now to speak about it in great detail. But but yeah, there are. People that I mean, alcohol is a poison. There's no two ways about it. You can you can be a moderate drinker and only drink two drinks a day and do it for your entire life and be very proud of that. That's fine. But you can't argue the fact that alcohol is a poison. 
I mean, the, the reason it gives you that buzz, right, is inhibiting your brain function. That's what a buzz is. So you can say it's a poison, but it's one I'm willing to live with. That's fine if you want to be just, a moderate drinker. I'm just but don't deny that it's a poison. I'm diluting my arsenic every yeah. day, slowly building yeah. up a tolerance to I, my arsenic. I drink my Drano with tonic water, right? <laughs> yeah. Ex- exactly. So when you look at it from that standpoint, the idea that it's, you know, fucking with your brain chemistry and altering wow. the chemicals that are being released in your head, this shouldn't be surprising. You know, it's like sucking on a tailpipe. You think that's going to work out well for you in the long term? Mm-hmm. Probably not. So so you've got, you get to this point where your brain says, okay, I'm only going to release the pleasure neurotransmitters when you drink. And then you say, okay, fine brain, but I've decided I'm not drinking anymore because of the havoc alcohol is wreaking in my life. And for me, there were two times where I quit drinking for six months. And one time I quit drinking for nine months and I still felt awful. I remember specifically the time I made it to nine months. I, I just, I remember when I decided to start drinking again, this wasn't some traumatic relapse thing where I drove by a bar and I, I, my car drove itself in there and I was drinking before I knew it. It wasn't like I actually sat and thought long and hard about reintroducing alcohol into my life. And the reason I decided to do it, to drink again, was because I still felt awful. I still felt like badly depressed, debilitatingly depressed, tons of anxiety. My OCD, which, you know, continues to plague me in sobriety, but it's much better now than it used to be. It was off the hook back then. And so I had all these negatives, still a hug from my kid or my kid gets an A on a test or I see a sunset, or my soccer team wins, all of those things, they still weren't bringing me pleasure. Nine months sober, and I still felt like garbage. So the logic at that point was, well, if this is just how it's going to be for the rest of my life, I'm going to feel like garbage, I might as well drink, because that brings me some pleasure. And if I have to deal with the garbage of the morning after, the the, the depression being amped up you know, 10x what it normally is, then I'll just have to deal with that, because... The only way I can get pleasure in my life is alcohol. And I started drinking again. And what we've learned through, you know, what what now I label as permanent sobriety. I'm three and a half years sober now. And, but not just from my case, but from studying this and, and talking to so many people and hearing their stories, is that kind of on average, it takes about a year before your neurotransmitters start to function in a near normal way before you go back to, you know, finding pleasure from eating a great meal or, you know, uh, getting a promotion at work. You go, it takes about a year for that to correct itself. So for that first year, your brain is just saying, listen, nope, I only give you dopamine when you give me alcohol. And finally, we break that pattern after, after about a year, obviously it's not, you know, 365 days on the dot. It's, Mm -hmm. it, it, there's a range, but for the most part, it takes about a year, and then, and then you start to feel pleasure for normal, pleasurable things, and that's a that's a game changer. That's huge, because instead of waiting for that dopamine or serotonin hit for only when you drink, it, it happens when you wake up and you feel clear headed, or you, or you know, just some, one of the many many nice things that happens during the day. You you get to work and someone compliments your shoes and you're like, oh, that's nice to hear. And it feels good. And these are the things that we need for survival, these little boosts. It, it helps us 
handle the downsides. It helps us handle all the stress and pressure and the negatives that come our way when we've got a counterbalance of some good stuff. And learning that that took a year, again, was a game changer because, you know, a year just, it sounds like such a long period of time when you're just first starting to enter a period of sobriety. But if you think about it, in my case, I drank for 25 years pretty heavily. And this idea of it taking a year to heal from that, a year's not that long in the grand scheme of if you're going to live 80, 90 years in total and you spent 25 years trashing your life as best you could, a year of recovery, of, of early sobriety, of early recovery, it's really not, not that big a deal. How did you, how did that impact you, this whole concept of, and, and I don't even know if you knew when I was going through it that it was going to take a year because we, we were learning as we went along, but, you know, when you would see me months and months into sobriety, just dragging around like Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh, uh, was it hard? Like, were you worried that I was never going to be, never smile again? Um, yeah, in a lot of ways I was. And I know, like, it was kind of selfish to be like, okay, well, you just, I took away your joy. And, you know, by all the years of harping you to quit, which that doesn't work, but I kind of also was like, well, this is what happens when you screw with everything for, I mean, I didn't know brain chemistry, but when you screw out, screw with your life and toy with your emotions through alcohol for so many years... I kind of thought, well, maybe this is just how it's going to be. And I felt bad for you that you weren't going to have it. And I didn't quite understand, like, why, um, you know, there wasn't contentment. But um, I guess I was going to have to learn to deal with someone who was just only, you know, only there. Like, you were there, but you weren't there. Like... That is actually the exact line they use on one of the uh, antidepressant commercials that they play on TV. Like, you were there, but you weren't there. Mm. Well done, Sherry. You're, de- you're describing depression very well. Yeah. Well, and but, you, we, we know that there is depression that runs in your family. So I kind of was going, like, going to let you kind of get through and then kind of if things weren't better after a while. But I wasn't going to, like, be impatient about it, but try to suggest maybe you should look at antidepressants and stuff and then we've learned all about them now yeah so that wouldn't have been the right solution but it's very interesting that one of the very first things you said when you started to answer this question was that you felt guilty because you were you know certainly I wasn't going to quit drinking alcohol until I was in enough pain to quit. That's one of the things that we've learned. Mm-hmm. People can't change each other. Your pain, sadly, what your pain and your anger and your frustration and your threats and all of it was sadly not enough to make me quit. I had to get into enough personal pain before I could quit. That's the only reason that anyone makes any substantial changes in their lives. But even so, even though I made the decision on my own to quit, you still felt guilty like you had taken this one joy away from me and it seemed that there was no other joy available to me. Yeah. That, I mean, I think that's super important for our listeners to hear because I think it's totally common. I mean, you know it's right. You knew it was right, right? You knew yeah. alcohol had wrecked me, had wrecked our marriage. It needed to go. 
Yeah. And But you can know something's right and still feel guilty about yeah. it at the same time. And then I kind of felt guilty because I kind of had like a little bit of like, ha, 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 this is what you get for yeah. screwing with everything in your life. And not, you know, in my mind, I was like, well, if you'd have just been a normal moderate drinker, you wouldn't have done this to yeah. yourself. You know, that was also another thing that like I hadn't gotten to the point where I realized that alcohol had hijacked your brain and that it was a mental illness and a disease versus just weakness um, and selfishness. So then I felt guilty about having those feelings of like, well, you kind of did this to yourself, you know, this is your bed that you've made. So then that was a whole other level of guilt. Yeah. Yeah, that's that part's super interesting and super important for our listeners too because, I mean, I think that's so, so common, the... Oh, if you would just drink like me, I mean, I'm sure that's what you thought, right? If you just drink like me, just sometimes, not even every weekend, but when you're when you're with people, yeah, drinking's supposed to be a social thing. Why do you sit in the basement and drink by yourself? Yeah, if you would just drink like me, you'd be fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and you know, like you've heard, like my family has alcoholism that runs through it too. So, like I've heard family members talk about other family members that have issues and says, well, if they could just handle a couple of beers every now and then, then they wouldn't have a problem. Well, then we learn that that's not it, that's you know? That's how it works. It's sad. That's actually a great transition into the next kind of subtopic I want to talk about as it relates to neurochemistry. One of the long-standing beliefs or practices of 12-step recovery programs AA, Alcoholics Anonymous, and others, is this concept of harm reduction. And what harm reduction is, it says, if alcohol is your jam, like it was for me, if alcohol is your thing, we want you to stop drinking alcohol. And if you have to develop some other addiction, some other habit that's less destructive than alcoholism, but it keeps you from drinking then you should do it. Hmm. We're I reducing... think also Dr. Phil said that once. I wouldn't be surprised. Several times, but I heard on it, yeah, like, you can't replace a habit until you put another habit in its place. Whatever that habit is. Well, but that, then this kind of goes along with that harm reduction. Like You've, you've heard, and lots of people have heard, you, we talk about the void, <laughs> the void of addiction. When, when the drinking goes away, what's left is a void. You've got to replace it with something. Mm-hmm. So that's the same thing. Yeah. But now, the goal would be putting a better yeah. habit in its place. Like eating broccoli. Yeah. If you could, Flossing your teeth. Yes. That's what all dental hygienists would love for everybody that is in a 12-step program to floss their teeth. Instead of drinking. Instead of whatever their that jam is. would be a is. lot of tooth flossing. You'd have to get the mint kind, I think, or you'd go <laughs> nuts. Even then, you'd go nuts. <laughs> But here's the problem with the concept of harm reduction, especially because most alcoholics are going to, to get off of alcohol, they're going to exchange that habit for sugar in one form or another. Mm-hmm. Um, either it's you know going to be like pie, cake, cookies, whatever. Chips. Or, well, okay, chips is another, not... Because it's a quick car. Yeah, it's a... It's a so, yeah, either you're going to go sweet with your food, 
like we just talked about, cookies or chocolate or ice cream. Ice cream's a huge one. Or you're going to go salty. Now, your chips are not necessarily sugars, but they are carbohydrates, highly processed carbohydrates that get converted to sugar almost immediately in our system. So they work like sugar in our brains and in our bodies. This is where the biology comes in. It's not all just neurochemistry. So so they basically work in the same way. They're equally as dangerous. Or it's going to be the sugary drinks. You know, there are lots of people that are like, they quit drinking so alcohol, good. but they, they uh, drink Two Mountain Dew like it's going out of yeah. style. And, and they find that that helps, helps handle the cravings. Well, here's why. Our brains treat sugar almost identically to the way our brains treat alcohol. So when we, when we go into early sobriety and we eat that bowl of ice cream and it soothes that craving, it's because the sugar is basically traveling on the same neural pathways that the alcohol did. So the brain goes, okay, I got the sugar, so uh, I don't, I'm not dying for the alcohol anymore, but the but it also satisfied the craving. So tomorrow, the craving is going to come back. Because we're not... You seem to be get, having the giggles I'm, over there. Sorry. What's You're going just on? talking about ice cream and sugar. Yeah. And I'm just thinking about like your How first... You eat ice cream? <laughs> no. Oh. Thinking about your first year of sobriety. I ate a lot of ice cream. Before you learned all this. I ate a lot of ice cream. Yeah. Is that what you're thinking? <laughs> you sat up in bed every night <laughs> watching your news because... We don't have, like, a family room TV necessarily, and the kids would be, like, you know, getting ready for bed. <laughs> you had a five-gallon cookies and cream ice cream tub in there. I you re- came up on the bowl at some point, and then the kids would be like, can we have some ice cream? No, that's my ice cream. Like, I, you didn't say that, but you almost came out of your skin when they would ask for ice cream for dessert, you know? Well, they can or, have different ice cream. They just, they just couldn't, couldn't have my ice they cream. They couldn't have your five-gallon big plastic tub, because... You were at least limiting yourself to that in a, like a week or something. But I remember when I found that at Safeway, the big, <laughs> you know, they've got all the regular size ice creams. And then over on the edge, yes. there's like, and it was two flavors. You could have <laughs> vanilla or cookies and cream. Those are the only two flavors of those huge tubs. Yes. But yeah. I bought only two of those for vacation Bible school for 70 kids. And then <laughs> you go through one of those a week. Oh, that was funny. So, yeah, so I was falling into the trap of... Well, because, I mean, every AA meeting that you've kind of been around, they offer coffee. I know that... And donuts. And donuts or quick carbohydrate snacks or or something that's there on the table. I mean... Well, that's because here's the thing. I'm not... uh, The fellowship of AA is great. The 12 steps I have some problems with, but, but fundamentally there's some good in the 12 steps. But it's based on a book that was written 80 years ago. Right. Well, guess what? We've learned a lot about the brain since 80 years ago. We've learned a lot about the brain since last year. I, you know, I'm constantly reading updates to what we know about how the, these neurotransmitters function. But, but certainly in the last decade, we've learned a ton. And we've come to understand the fallacy of harm reduction. And the fact that if I feed my addiction sugar or I feed it carbs that turn into sugar... The brain goes, okay, that wasn't alcohol, but it was close enough to alcohol that I'm going to beg for the alcohol again tomorrow and the day after and the day after. So, like, I have a therapist friend, well, Jason Polk, who started this podcast with me. He's on a lot of the early episodes. He used to recommend to, to his 
his clients, his patients that were in um, alcoholism recovery, that when they feel that craving, he specifically would say, go to Dairy Queen and get a blizzard. Get your favorite flavor of blizzard. Every evening when the witching hour comes and you want to drink scotch, go to Dairy Queen and get a blizzard. And his, his patients would report, Jason, you were right. It made that craving go away. So now all I got to do is eat a blizzard every single night, which there's enough, you know, obvious problems with that. Yeah. There's enough obvious problems with that. But what they didn't realize is, oh, that's also making my craving for alcohol come flying back the next day. Mm -hmm. This also happens. There's a lot of people going back to the initial discussion that we had about, I'm only going to drink this low alcohol beer, but I can drink unlimited quantities of low alcohol beer well as long you know let let's say i was able to keep that in in check better than when i drank whiskey or vodka because it's not as strong and i caused less problems for the family and i was less obviously drunk and you think oh i got everything fixed well but you're still feeding the brain alcohol and brain your brain says oh Okay, as long as I'm getting the alcohol, that's the only thing I'm going to release the pleasure neurotransmitters for. So it might be low alcohol beer. It might not give you the euphoria you want. It might not give you the buzz you want. But it's still uh, keeping your brain in this hijacked position. You can't heal. If you keep feeding your brain sugar or you keep feeding your brain carbs or you keep feeding your brain alcohol, but just a little bit, Mm -hmm. your brain's never going to make any attempt to heal and go back to the the way it should work, where you feel pleasure from a beautiful sunset or, you know, a hug from someone you love. So it's super, super important um, that we get away from this concept of harm reduction. So that draws me to a question I hadn't thought about before, but so I don't even know if you can buy like 3-2 beer around anymore because that's the only way you could get at grocery stores and convenience stores and stuff. But now that they here in Colorado sell full strength, I don't even know if that's an option, but what about like all the non-alcoholic beers? Like, what are those made from? Is that made from something that's not alcohol? So you're going to get like, the empty carbs. Empty carbs. That's, so it's still, still the wheat, still and a barley threat and... from the empty carb. Um, mm-hmm. Some people believe that because it tastes like beer, although I don't think it tastes anything like beer. So because think... we did have quite an experiment of all the different liquor stores and all the different varieties. Of I did during one period of sobriety decide I was going to become an expert on a connoisseur connoisseur of, of non-alcoholic beer. Beers. Um, I don't think it tastes enough like re- real beer to be a trigger, but that's one of the fears. If you uh-huh. if you take a green glass bottle out of the refrigerator and drink a hoppy liquid it's going to make you it's going to trigger you to want real alcohol that didn't happen for me yeah but it has the empty carbs it has the empty carbs so it's it's a form of harm reduction um but it's not i don't think it's it's not like eating a whole blizzard or eating out of my five gallon tub of (laughs) ice cream i don't think it's nearly as threatening as that i mean i've like kombucha now, there's a place locally that serves it in a pint glass and it has a little head on it. So it I, looks I was I, drinking coffee with a friend once who had a kombucha and I'm like, wow, that looks exactly like a beer. And, and you know, I know that we've definitely got listeners who have tried kombucha, kombucha and I, Draft, I'm interested. Yeah. I just never have yet. Draft coffees that look like a really... Yeah, like, like Starbucks has got those yeah, nitro be, brews or mm-hmm. whatever and they've got a head on them. They look like mm-hmm. a Guinness, like you said. Yeah. So if that's triggering for, for an alcoholic, then they need to stay away from it. But I don't think it, they're threatening 
they're not as threatening as a tub of ice cream or a blizzard from the harm reduction standpoint. But there's an entirely there's there's also another whole segment of the the neurochemistry, and that's you know of the brain. That's the subconscious mind and the way that subconscious mind works. And what this basically is is our patterns. I mean, there's so much going on in our brain that we have no ability to tap into. If you think about it for a second, our breathing, our heart rate, um, our insulin balance, eyes blinking. There's all kinds of stuff going on that we don't control manually. We have no concept that it's even happening, and thank God for that. And our patterns, our traditions, the, the things that we do routinely without even thinking about falls into that category. And when you drink every night... Or even if you're a weekender, if you drink every Friday and Saturday night, when Friday and Saturday night rolls around, your brain's ready to drink, whether you are or not. So it doesn't matter if you've been through a long period of sobriety or you're you're trying sobriety, I should say. Um, When the patterns haven't been changed yet, your subconscious mind is going to go there. And what's important to understand about the subconscious mind is... Remember what I said about how important pleasure is. It's linked to survival. So if if we let something happen, like, for instance, a big trigger is letting our blood sugar drop too low. If we let our blood sugar drop too low, our conscious thinking brain gets turned off and our, we go into survival mode, like fight or flight mode. And when we go into that, our brain says, I want to acquire everything that's on my list for survival because this person is dying. I need to survive. So if we have alcohol on our survival list because we've, we've trained our brain that the only way we get pleasure is through alcohol, so it is now equated to survival, we could have low blood sugar. We could skip a meal and it could force us to drink because blood sugar drops brain switches to the amygdala from the prefrontal cortex and we say I need to acquire these things on the survival list and alcohol is one of them. So getting those our subconscious mind, getting our brain changed back around from from what the patterns of alcoholism are to what the patterns of not being an alcoholic are to a normal pattern, it takes time. Again, you know, we talked about a year of repair for neurotransmitters. Getting some of the stuff that's stuck in our subconscious mind switched back to normal, that can take upwards of a year as well. But it's so important. It's, it's vitally necessary so that our brain stops working against us. These cravings, these bad situations we might put ourselves in, um, the, the overwhelming temptation that just comes out of nowhere. You think you're doing fine. Your mood is good. You're dealing with your loved ones. Well, it seems like everything's fine. And then bam, something hits you and you have no idea why. It can be that your blood sugars drop too low or you listen to a song that reminds you of your drinking days and your brain goes, oh, let's see, what does this song have to do with? Let me check the memory banks. Oh yeah. We used to, um, in high school, go sit under the bleachers and drink, 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 drink when we heard this song. And so when I hear that song now, you know, 30 years later, I want to drink when I hear it. So the power of the subconscious mind is really important, especially for as long as we have connected alcohol with survival. Does that all make sense, Sherry? Yeah. Yeah. Super important for you to learn as a 
as the loved one of an alcoholic because you would see because you would see my mood swing right you would yeah. see everything seems fine and then all of a sudden I'm a wreck mm-hmm. yeah but I mean with your drinking over the years I had kind of just well I kind of just pegged you as this moody SOB yeah I just thought God he is so moody and easily irritated just between drinking and then this I just thought oh my god he's very unstable with his emotions like it's just this polar you know opposites sometimes because I hadn't learned that you needed to work on homeostasis balancing and and then that's much better you know yeah well you talk about mood I mean what I've learned is that my mood is dependent on my sobriety, but my sobriety is also dependent on my mood. When you talk about an equilibrium, there's a balance there. I've got to do the other things to keep my mood balanced, like I've got to eat at regular intervals and not skip a meal if I'm too busy or not skip a meal if I'm not hungry and think, oh, I can spare these calories. It'll be great. You know, I might lose a pound. No, no, I'm, I might lose a pound. Who cares? In comparison to my blood sugar might drop too low. And I might go into survival mode and that might make me crave alcohol in a way that I can't resist. So keeping that mood balance is is just super, super important. So one one of the things that's that we we really need to mention when we talk about these topics on the podcast, Sherry, is that um, there is a lot for you, for me, when we were going through early recovery. There was a lot for me to learn and then I would share with you and there was a lot for you to learn and we had to leave the preconceived notions of what society had taught us about alcohol and come to realize the truth about neurochemistry and biology mm-hmm. and um, because alcoholism is such a hush hush whisper whisper disease this information doesn't get disseminated easily so we are really proud of the echoes of recovery program the, the group that we've established with a bunch of really loving, wonderful people who are trying to learn from each other, not only go through experiences and share what it's like to be the loved one of an alcoholic, because that who that's who the Echoes of Recovery program is for, the loved ones of alcoholics. Many people in the group are spouses, but we've got parents of alcoholics in the group as well. Um, and we welcome adult children of alcoholics as well. They, they're going through similar and, and many people in the group are are that adult children's of alcoholics. It's it's such a similar situation, and we want to be all inclusive. But th- this this stuff is so important because it's not otherwise communicated in society. So within this this group that we've created, we're sharing this truth and helping each other understand that when my alcoholic acts this way. You know, we're recording this right before the Independence Day weekend. It'll be released directly after the Independence Day weekend. That's a huge trigger. We've got people, drinkers, that their entire life, they just stood by the beer cooler and the barbecue all day on July 4th until it was fireworks time and drank as much as they could possibly fit in their body. Yeah. And and maybe they've been sober for a few months, but they haven't been sober for the 4th of July yet. And this wave of trigger is going to come back to them because of this holiday and their subconscious mind and the memories of the past. And these are the kinds of topics that we deal with in the Echoes of Recovery program, trying to help each other. So if, you are, if you're listening to this and this resonates and you have a loved person in your life that, that 
you you know you want help understanding what they're going through you want help repairing the relationship and most importantly you want help in your own recovery from their alcoholism we want to invite you to join us in the echoes of recovery program you can find out more about it at echoesofrecovery.com that's e c h o e s of recovery.com so check us out we would love to invite some new people to join us Last thing I want to mention about all this neurochemistry stuff, the subconscious mind, the neurotransmitter, Sherry, is that in long-term recovery, you can return to near-normal brain function. And I always call it near-normal because, yeah, your neurotransmitters will start firing properly. Your subconscious mind will no longer uh, relate Friday and Saturday night to drinking days. I mean, I don't think about alcohol at all on the weekends anymore. Um, But... The knowledge that we have of how to handle drinking goes into um, goes into dormancy. It's still there. The knowledge is still there. And all it takes is to start drinking again and you'll be right back where you are. Alcoholism is a progressive disease. Uh, you just get worse and worse and worse and worse as your drinking continues. And even if you take a 20-year sobriety period off... If you relapse and start drinking again, within within a couple of days, your brain is going to go right back to where it was. So this can't be reversed. It can only be put into, like I said, a state of dormancy, a hibernation. So when we're when you when the loved ones of alcoholics are encouraging your alcoholic and sobriety, it's so helpful that you understand the neurochemistry, you understand the subconscious mind, you understand what's going on. Um, brain-wise and body-wise, but it's also important that you understand that there's no fixing this. You can't you can't reset your brain and then all of a sudden drink again. It just doesn't work that way. There are lots of you know dead people who could attest to the fact that it doesn't work. Robin Williams is the one that I cite most frequently because I'm just fascinated by that guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he took 20 years off of drinking, and once he started again, within a couple of days, he was in worse shape than he had ever been in his life. So. It's important that we stay the course. This is, uh, we can fix this brain chemistry. We can fix the subconscious mind. We can make it function properly again, but we can never, you know, leave the disease behind us and start drinking again. It's a permanent So you mean there's no moderate drinking or normal drinking? There is no such thing. After you've, yeah. That's right. And it's great. Honestly, once you get to the point I've gotten to, I wouldn't drink if you paid me. That stuff's poison and I know it. I've learned about it. So, you know... It's, it's a very calming and peaceful and enlightened feeling to get to where I am. I wouldn't, n- nothing could make me drink, I don't think, at this point. Um, but it's important for someone that might hold out hope that, oh, if I just take two years off, I can drink again. No, no, you can't. Sorry. That's um, not in it for us humans. We want to thank you for listening to us. I hope that this explanation of brain chemistry and the perspective of the loved one who has also learned the same thing. I hope that this is helpful for you wherever you are. If if you like this stuff and you want to support this mission, maybe Echoes of Recovery isn't right for you, but you support us on our mission to crush the stigma associated with alcoholism, we sure would love your financial support. Um, our nonprofit organization that handles all of this is called Stigma. And through... At, at stigma.org, thestigma.org, uh, backslash donate, 
you, um, we'd love your financial support if you are so inclined and want to see us keep going. We're, we're going to keep going. Don't get me wrong, but um, we can use all the help we can get. And again, the website is thestigma.org backslash donate. For my wife, Sherry Salis, my name is Matt Salis. We're so pleased to have brought you hopefully what is a little bit of an educational experience here on the Intoxicated Podcast today. And we hope you'll listen in next time. Thanks very much.